listening to the Hell on Wheels podcast with your host, Jason Hallman. Hi, this is Rich. Hey, Rich, it's Jason. How are you? I'm good. I'm ready to go, man. <laughs> <laughs> I am, too. I can see the levels on the machine are telling me that hey, I'm getting your signal. Hey, you're supposed to be ready to go. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm all good. We've got it figured out. All right. Okay. What was the problem? Do you know? Yeah, I, I'm doing this... Um, when you have a phone line, you want to you wanna get the best audio you can, so I bought this machine to do it, and there was two other programs that I needed to run on the computer, and once I run those, it tricks the computer into thinking it's two separate devices. So there's a recording side and a playback side. So Oh, okay. So I, I can I know we're getting good audio now, and I've, I've tested it and tested it and tested it. And I actually I got to tell you, I've got a friend that does a, a nationwide podcast. He's, a, he's another teacher, and... Um, he called me. He's like, man, he goes, what did you do? Because I did a podcast the other night with Tim Bradham from uh, TBC Hot Rods in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And he's like, the audio is way better than mine. And this guy spent like $5,000 on recorders and this special $500 VOD recorder for phones and stuff. So I, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm doing it on the cheap. But he's like, your audio sounds awesome. So, man, I appreciate your patience in the last week and a half of me getting my poop in a group with this thing. So, Well, well that's okay. You know, it- this one will probably go pretty good because last week, man, I was like really fighting this flu or whatever it was, you know, and sometimes I felt really good and sometimes I felt really crappy. You know what I mean? So, so, uh, if I sound a little hoarse, it's okay. It's just the tail end of this. So I, uh, I just, I talked to fabricator Kevin after I talked to you earlier today and I, I told him, I said, you know, I said, I felt like an ass. I, I, you know, I said, Rich was really cool about it. I said, but I haven't talked to Rich in five years. I said, so it was really just two of us catching up for an hour. And I said, it actually is probably going to make the podcast even sound better. So, (laughs) so, um, What's going on? I, you, I I saw you just posted something today. You're doing a frame for somebody that the curator of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. No, that was um, that was an older project. There, I I uh, don't have a lot of pictures that are ready to go up of of the new stuff. So I I pulled some stuff out of the out of the file there. But that was that was a few years ago. Yeah. How long have you been on Facebook now? Ah, uh, since I think December ninth. Okay, so I I didn't I wasn't off the radar and and not in tune. You just you hadn't uh, you hadn't joined the uh, the dark side yet. No, no, I hadn't because uh, you know Fabricator Kevin encouraged me to do it. You know, and Steve uh, that helps me out part time has been after me for like four years to do it. You know, and I'm going yeah yeah yeah. You know, I got blog, I got a website. I said I I don't need Facebook. You know, and all this, but. Uh, yeah, it's uh, enabled me to catch up with a lot of people I haven't seen for for a few years, and uh, it it seems to be getting a good response. Cool, man. Um, you know, uh, I wanted to a couple things I wanted to talk about because we had talked about them briefly last week. But I want this podcast to prop up um, the garage builders. You know, I mean, there's a, a lot of people that. Um, and when I say garage builders, I don't mean people that aren't professionally doing this. I'm talking about the guys that started out in their garage and they're building those kinds of bikes. Guys like you, guys like, uh, you know, um, Rico Fadre is another one that, that, that strikes me as building a garage-style bike. And, and those are the kinds of things that I wanted this to draw attention to, not just, you know, guys that are building, uh, you know, billet machines with uh, $10,000 paint jobs. I understand, yeah. And, you know, the way that... 
with the the internet that we have at our disposal, with Instagram and Facebook and things like that, it allows us to control how our projects get out into the general public. Well, it's um, you know, there's there's a lot of people out there, you know, and it, sometimes if you don't have a brick and mortar place, you know, um, I, I I don't know what it is, but. Uh, you know, uh, somehow you're thought of as being like not professional, or I, I I don't know how to put it. You know, that's something that I I struggled with for a lot of years. I started um, full time in the business, and I started out with a brick and mortar shop um, for no other reason other than the people that I would have been in competition with in Detroit. And the kind of shop I wanted to have wasn't really a builder shop. I'm not a builder. I'm I, you know we do service, but I got a lot of flack from guys that were in the business because I was friendly to everybody. I was friendly to the garage guys. I had them at, you know, we had like this big open house and stuff and we had them to, uh, we had them to that open house. It was a big, you know, it was a come one, come all kind of party. And I really got a lot of flack. So I, I, over the years I've, I've come to come to find that there's a lot of talented people that don't have uh, a $5,000 a month rent payment. And I, I actually think they're a lot smarter than guys like me that, you know, I was talking with Tim. I'm writing $24,000 a year just to stand in someone else's box. Well, that's true, you know, and, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people out there that, uh, you know, choose choose to work on a smaller a smaller level. You know, if, if I had been in a large place, you know, a large square footage place back in 2006, um, I would have been back here again. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't have been able to make that nut every month, you know, that 1500 to $2,000 a month nut. And, uh, you know, so I didn't have to move everything back again. Do you know what I mean? Just to have the, the big sign on the front of a, of a standalone business, you I, know. I totally and, agree. Uh, you know, you, you think back, at, Johnny Chop never never had a big, giant place, you know. I mean, he he... He always had a small place, and there's a there's a bunch of people that that operate like that. Yeah, and you know, I think they're smart for doing. It. I think you, I think your your business number one, you can have all the intentions of the world of doing things a certain way, but I think your business is largely dictated based on the type of clientele that comes through your door and how you are able to work with them to try to get the project done that they want done. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely a collaborative effort, but you don't have to have you have to have enough room to work efficiently but you don't have to have a huge amount of space well that's true you know and i i always kid around with people i always tell them uh you know that my place is uh, so small that the mice walk around here hunchback you know and uh, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes i wish i had a little bit more space but uh you know I, i'm happy with what i have and it, sometimes yeah it gets a little crowded in here but uh you know, everybody gets out in a timely fashion. Do you have um, Do you have anything? Uh, do you have everything you need? You know, obviously you have everything you need to do your job. But do you have anything? Is there anything you're lacking because of space? I mean, do you have a lathe? Do you have a mill? Do you have those types of requisite things that a lot of other builders have? Well, I don't have a mill. I have a lathe, and uh, you know, I have all my welders. I have my hydraulic tubing benders. I have my welding tables. I have the lifts. I have everything here that I would have. You know, normally it's just in a smaller square footage. Right. Well, and, and it's, it's at your house, about right? The, well, I want to say, Jason, the only thing I can't really do here at this location, you know, and I'm I'm pretty good at it, is uh, is paint. And uh, that I let, uh, that I have other people do. 
so was painting something did you ever paint your own stuff in the in the past oh i have yeah i uh originally when i went into the uh the body trades as a as a profession you know a full-time job um back in uh, 1980 uh i started out as a combo guy which there's very few of them left anymore that a combo guy is a guy that does you know pretty much all the way from you know changing sheet metal and straightening the fender all the way through primer and then up into the final paint coats, you know. So, uh, you know, I had a real strong production background in, uh, in auto refinishing in that. And, uh, I have, uh, I have an associate degree in, uh, auto body and auto refinishing. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, that's pretty cool. Cause most of the time you hear about guys that have, um, that have credentials in, in for car stuff. It's generally it's ASC certification, things like that. And, you know, um, that, that brings up an interesting point because obviously you have an automotive background. When did you start getting into motorcycles? Um, when, when did it take over? When did it, you know, when was it more important or, or more interesting to you? Well, actually, I started out with the bikes first. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, I was always crazy for hot rods and, and dragsters and uh, and the cars and that, but uh, you know the bikes had always been my focus. And uh, I had a bike and a motorcycle license before I had a a car and a and a and a and a, and a, and a car license. Did you grow up in in uh, the Denver area? No, uh, no. Um, actually, I was born in Daytona Beach, Florida. And uh, I was born in uh, Halifax Community Hospital, which is just a couple blocks away from where the racetrack is now. When uh, when I was a kid, there was no there was no Daytona Speedway. There they were still racing on the beach. Well, you just dated yourself. I, I, I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> well. Uh, when we left, they they hadn't even built the built the Speedway yet. Because I think the Speedway I think was finished in like 1960. How did you end up in uh, in Colorado? Well, uh, you know, I, uh, my dad worked for General Motors, and he had uh, a chance to uh, move back to Buffalo because that's where he and my mom were from. And uh, he had a chance to be a final inspector on the uh, engine line at the Chevy Tonawanda plant. That's the plant who used to make all the big block, the, uh, big block motors and, and a lot of the small block engines. And uh we had a lot of family in Buffalo still, so we moved back up there. And then, when uh, when I was just just getting out of high school, I said, "I've I've had enough of Buffalo. I I can't take this anymore." And I headed for right for the West Coast. And you stopped at the Rocky Mountains. Well, I went through here. I had friends here in Denver, and uh, I kind of bounced for a few years between like uh, Denver and San Francisco and Los Angeles, and then back to Denver and uh, back uh, for a couple months to Buffalo. And then finally, uh, a couple of my buddies wanted to come back out here. And I said, you know, I either want to live in the Bay Area or I want to live in Denver. And uh, I kind of rolled the dice. And, and I've been here in Denver since like, uh, oh, the middle of 1971. So I'm, I've been here for a long, long time. So it's home. It's it's not changing. That's, that's where you put your roots down. Um, how did you and and you can you can choose to defer this question or not because it's not something that I know anything about. Um, how did you end up a sinner, being from Denver? Um, well, you know I knew a lot of the guys uh, out on the West Coast. You know, and Chopper Dave was the 
was the first center that I knew, and that goes back to like, geez, 97, I think it was. And uh, then, uh, you know, on periodic visits south of the West Coast, I would I would meet the sinners, you know, and I think the uh, the next sinner I met after that was uh, Denver Dan, and then uh, Can't Stay Jose. And uh, it wasn't until, oh gosh, I knew those guys for a long time. It, it's it's difficult with the sinners because, you know, we, you always say if you set out to be a sinner, you're not going to be one. Do you know what I mean? And it just yeah. sort of happens. I, I, I don't know how else to explain it. And it was, uh, I think, uh, 2004. Uh, I, the sinners always had... Uh, well, actually, it was Dustin's party, but then it became Sinner's party on for the Fourth of July, and uh, I was working here at the house, and uh, the phone rang, and uh, it was uh, Chopper Dave, and he said, "Here, uh, uh, Dave Park wants to talk to you." And I said, "What's up, Dave?" I said, "You guys having a good time?" He said, "Yeah, we are. You're a sinner," and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's the way it usually happens. Well, that's cool. Um, you know, one of the, I, I really liked the documentary that um, Scott and Zach did um, on the, uh, the the Chopper Town one, and I just wondered, you know, because I I've, I've talked to Rico, but not about this, and I've talked to Dave, but not about this, obviously. But I mean, did that did, is that looked upon favorably or unfavorably, or can you not say, or would you rather not say, or? Well, um, you know, it was, um, it basically wasn't really about the sinners, you know, it was more about, uh, Chopper Town was more about, uh, Cuddy and Rico and the, uh, and the path they took building, uh, building Cuddy's motorcycle. Do you know right. what I mean? And then it just kind of grew from there. And, uh, so it wasn't actually, a, a, a like a sinner documentary per se, you know, it was more about, um, their two efforts. Right. You know, that I think that spurred a lot of uh, – I will say that um, whether it's looked upon favorably or unfavorably by um, those that were involved with it, I think that it definitely spurred the movement away from the wide tire bikes. Uh, it spurred the movement away from some of the um, <sighs> inauthenticity of some of the people that rode motorcycles. I, I don't want to take anything away from anybody who rides a motorcycle because I, I enjoy all different types of bikes and all different types of people, but it seemed that there was a disingenuous element of people who bought the biggest, longest, fattest tired bike and rode it for a Daytona bike week or two and then traded it in on a, on a minivan. And I think that that, uh, that documentary single-handedly probably drew light to a group of guys just hanging out and riding bikes that weren't necessarily the most expensive bikes out there. Well, that's what, you know, we always say, you know, the sinners is a group of guys that, uh, that love each other. Do you know? And I mean, that's, that's pretty simple, you know, and it's, it's not really a club and it's not a motorcycle club, but it's not a car club. You know what I mean? It's a club with a motorcycle and car addiction, right? It's just a bunch of guys. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, you know, the guys run the gamut from, uh, you know, guys that are working construction or whatever, all the way up until, you know, some pretty talented people. So, uh, you know, there's everybody in between and, uh, we all care about the same things. And like I say, it just, uh, just kind of happens. Do you know what I mean? The friendship comes first. Sure. I, you know, I've got to stress that, that the friendship comes first and out of the friendship comes, you know, the bond. And that's, uh, 
that's the best way I can put it. That's cool. Um, one of the things that I, and I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, your first motorcycle because on I think on one of your Facebook posts you posted an, a receipt where it, a, a gentleman had sold you your first motorcycle and he was very clear in the receipt to make sure that you had either the blessing or the permission or <laughs> I don't can you walk me through that that transaction and and how how excited you must have been when you got that. Well, it was, you know, I, I had looked around for a long time for a bike, you know, and then uh, I got hooked up with uh, with a guy who was really into Indians, and he said, hey, look, if you're looking for a bike, you know, I know a guy, uh, this Joe Matt, and uh, he said the, the guy is like never closes Indian dealership. You know, when India went out of business, he just like carried on. And uh, he said, he's got a bunch of stuff out there. You really ought to go out there and look. And uh, I was uh, 16 at the time. See, I couldn't legally in New York State purchase a motorcycle. You see what I mean? So I had to have uh, a parent sign for it. See, they actually had to, like, buy it and then, like, let you, put let it you in my name, it. see? <laughs> so, you know, at that time, uh, you know, my dad wasn't living at home, and, uh, you know, my mom hated motorcycles, and, uh, you know, she... Uh, she begrudgingly uh, signed the papers for me, <laughs> <laughs> and and she opened Pandora's box. Um, yeah, and and she still doesn't like motorcycles. She's like uh, seventy nine years old. And she still doesn't like motorcycles. God love her. She's a smart woman. Because <laughs> you know but she we, tolerates them. Yeah, exactly. We we kind of we have we all have those people in our life. Um, how how much how cool is it to have a guy like that? There was a guy in Michigan that uh, owned a Triumph dealership, and he when Triumph went out of business, it really didn't matter. He just kept plugging along and bought every every Triumph part he could get, and he still sells them to this day. And, and you know, I mean, that's the kind of guy that um, you don't know who he is, you don't hear about him, um, or, you know, in a magazine, you don't see him on TV, you don't see any of that stuff. But those guys that are out there, and you know. Who strikes? Who's somebody that you still know to this day that you keep them in your back pocket and uh, and say, you know what? If I need uh, the you know this weird widget or gadget off of an old bike, I know I can call X, Y, or Z. Who is that? Who would I call? Yeah, um, I probably got a pretty good chance if I'm looking for something odd or somebody doesn't have it, uh, I can't find it. Uh, I would probably give Fat Bob a call there in Rockford, Illinois. Right on. I was, you know, who I thought you were going to say, Tim Bentley. Well, you know, I I run across Tim from time to time, and uh, you know, uh, I run into him at that at the the places that you wouldn't think that you'd run into him. And I mean, of course, I'm in Daytona, and I'm I, this was probably three years ago. I'm in Daytona, and I turn around, I'm at some VIP thing, and some luncheon or something that I probably shouldn't even be at. And I turn around and there's Tim with, you know, his hat on and his bushy mustache and his, he had looked like he had just walked all the way from the fairgrounds from the swap yeah. gate to get a free plate of food. It was awesome. Yeah. Tim is, uh, Tim is an unusual guy and, uh, you're right. I run into him in, in really strange places, you know, that I wouldn't expect to run into him, but, uh, yeah, I haven't had too much uh, business dealings with Tim. Uh, I've got uh, gotten a couple front ends from him and, and some parts here and there. But, uh, you know, actually at one time when he had, uh, I just thought of this, when he had his shop there in uh, Riverside, yeah. 
he was in the old uh, Action Choppers building. Right. Was the one that he had. And uh, when Tim had the store, I think the Action Choppers uh, big mural on the wall inside was still there from that. That that wouldn't surprise And he probably took it down and peeled it off the walls from the painting or somehow some weird way and, and has it somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. He's, I don't know. He's that, just... Uh, the, uh, but I understand that the mural was still there. I know Pat Leahy... Uh, and he worked at B&O Cycles, you know, in the early 70s. Yeah. Uh, when that place closed up, uh, Pat, I know, still has their big giant sign, and he's got it. He had it on the ceiling of his old shop, and uh, now that he had to move to the uh, to the new shop there a year or so ago, I'm pretty sure he probably still has that too. That's 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 the kind of stuff that we need to keep around, and and that's what I wanted to, you know, you're somebody that you this you're not a you you're not new in this. Situ, you know, in this game, and you're not—it's not a game, but you get my point. You know, you've been around the block a few times. You, you, you know, you've earned your stones. You've got a lot of bikes out there. You have a lot of different bikes out there, and you know, I never want to underestimate or um, not draw attention to the fact that we need guys that are willing to rat hole parts for us, and that's—you know—networking is is extremely important in this business. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, when. Uh, Steve first started working here. I have a, uh, I have a loose leaf uh, folder with uh, plastic business card sleeves that right. I put in there, and I've got dozens and dozens of those pages that are full of business cards. And Steve says, "Where the hell did you get all these?" You know, and I'm going, "You see this right here?" I go, "This is where we get all the stuff from." <laughs> yeah. I said, "This is." I said, if there was ever a fire, I said, I think this would be the first thing I grabbed and ran out with. <laughs> you know, that, that's that's funny you mentioned that because I went through, when we moved, my wife and I moved from Detroit down to Tampa here two and a half years ago. And when I moved down here, I found a box. And in that box, there was a business card stack. I'm not kidding. It was four foot or four inches thick with a big, you know, old dry rotted rubber band around it. And I popped that thing off. And I couldn't believe, it was kind of, it was kind of funny in 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 an ironic way, how many of those business cards were given to me by somebody at Daytona, at Cincinnati, at you know, at a you know the V Twin Expo, and or at you know Sturgis from guys that weren't in the business anymore. That kind of it, it, not break my heart, but kind of made me feel like, man, you know, it it really makes you realize how small this industry really is when you compare it to like the auto industry. Oh yeah, oh yeah, you know, and I remember. Uh, right around 2006 and 2000. No, I think it was 2007. Uh, normally, uh, I'll get like from the from the vendors. I'll get a new catalog every year. But it seemed like in 2007 there were a lot of vendors that called me and said, "Look, you know, we got our new catalogs ready and our price sheets, and we want to send you one. I just want to make sure you're still in business." You know, so that uh, that, that was pretty telling right there. How about how many, um, you know, some of the big companies, companies that you and I, I don't want to name any, but companies that you and I, you know, we, we do a really good job at making sure that we include their parts in, in our bikes and our builds and our customers and stuff, didn't send you a new catalog. They sent you a supplement or they sent you, uh, you know, they put that stuff on digitally and said, hey, you know, check out our website because that's, that's where that information's at now. You know, I mean, that's... 
and you know what? I think that's working smart instead of working hard. And, and we're all hard workers in this business, but um, I think it's kind of smart to not kill that many trees. I mean, man, if you had to stack up your catalogs, I bet you you could stack them to the ceiling. Well, you know, I'm I'm kind of an old-fashioned guy. You know, I kind of like to pull that catalog out and uh, flip through it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, and, I, and, I fight and look, with my I mean, dad. It's, it, to me, it's a pain in the ass to take that CD and put it into the tower and wait for it to load and then get it up on the screen and then go to the section and then go look at the part. I don't know. I just like the catalog, open it up, flip there, and, and point to it. I, you know, hate, I absolutely hate doing stuff online. I hate doing stuff with CDs, and it's funny because – um, I know you don't know a lot about my background, but <clears throat> my bike shop's a, a lot different than yours. My bike shop relies on a lot of foot traffic, so we have to be in a highly, you know, traveled area, and we've got to have, you know, we're right on a main road, and I've got to have a parts guy, and I have, you know, but it's a family business. My dad is my counter guy, and uh, I I came up in, um, do you remember the old Ram Chargers drag cars? Yes, I do. Yes, the the white cars with the red stripes. Yeah, Absolutely. The, candy, the candy matic cars. Well, my job in high school, I, I don't know how I landed it, I, probably my silver tongue even back then, I got a job in high school working at Ram Chargers, and they had seven or eight speed shops around the Detroit area, and these were the original guys. I worked at the main store, so the guys I worked for were um, Dick Skogland, uh, Sam Messina, and um, a guy named Leroy Palarchio. And uh, my manager was Joe Cameron. Joe Cameron was Don Garlett's inner bolt man in the 80s. Oh. Um, Sam Messina, was, who was one of the owners, was the guy who developed the dual magneto. And Dick Skogland, do you remember the original mighty Chrysler Hemi car, the, the, the one with the crazy zoomies and the, the tunnel ram that was made out of the rubber hoses and all that? No, I don't. No, I can't recall that. I'll have to find that picture for you, but it was the original Chrysler drag car, the original Ram Chargers car. That's who I worked for, and they taught me how to use the old TRW and Federal Mogul catalogs. Like, that's how – we didn't have a computer. Everything was done manually. So I like to have the catalogs around the the shop. I like to have the the catalogs in a catalog rack. I like to have them organized. I like to use the catalogs as a reference material. And my dad, who's, you know, 62 years old, my counter guys, you know, Get these goddamn things out of here. I'm, I'm going to use the Internet. You know, my dad started doing online banking, like, you know, in, in 95, you know. And I, I'm just – I'm I'm a purist and that I like I like to hold something in my hands. I like getting a horse magazine every month. I enjoy that. Well, you know, uh, I buy parts from, from the vendors and that. But then, you know, there's a lot of parts that, you know, go into my builds and that that uh, – and I know it's going to sound funny that, you know, I personally insist that they come from Harley Davidson from the factory. I and that. so I work closely with one of the five dealerships here in town for my parts in that. And uh, parts guys, there's, you know, always the parts manager. He's always there. He's there forever, you know, but the counter guys seem to be like constantly revolving. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, when I go in, I've either got part numbers with me or, you know, they ask me what I want and I tell them and then they go to the, to the computer, you know, and I tap them on the arm and I'm pointing behind the counter, you know, and I'm going turn around, I'm going grab that soft tail book right there. And they're like, 
they're like dumbfounded. Do you know what I mean? And well, I flip to the section and I point to the part. I go, you're 23. That's what I need. I need two of the 23. I need four of the 26. I need one of the 13. You know what I mean? And they're like typing away there. And uh, one time I was at the counter doing that. The parts manager walked by and he says, uh, you want a job? is Rich giving you a lesson in parts? And the guy goes, he sure is. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that you say that because let's stop there and just talk about that for a second. <clears throat> now, I, when I grew up, Harley-Davidson parts guys weren't like that. Harley-Davidson parts guys knew. I mean, you had a parts guy that would stay at one place for a long time. We had a Harley dealer um, outside of Detroit that called Jake's Harley-Davidson that ended up being now it's, um, it's uh, Motor City Harley-Davidson, I believe. Uh, and it's huge. You know, it's, it's owned by five different guys. They have, you know, $800 alligator boots. And, you know, they ride the latest dresser and that. And it's not the same. When I was a little kid, it was it was kind of important, and it was it was an important job in a dealership. And I don't pe- I don't think even the management realizes how important having a good parts guy is. Well, it's, it's very important. You know, I I dealt with uh, one fella named Ross Edney, and uh, his dad at one time owned the old Harley Davidson of Denver dealership, and he grew up in that dealership from the time he was a little kid until he was, you know, old enough to see over the counter. And then he started working the parts and he had everything up in his head almost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you said, I need a, he'd turn around and grab it off the shelf and put it down on the counter and it'd be the part you wanted. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I was uh, trained to learn what nomenclature meant. Like I know how to break. I can still remember, you know, working at the speed shops. I can tell you like center line wheels. I know the first three digits mean with the wheel series, you know, the 15, the eight, five is an eight and a half with a five inch bet. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. That's important. Well, it is important, you know, because, uh, not only did Ross know the parts, uh, he also knew what would work in place of another part. He'd, you know, go, ah, that's superseded, you know, he says, that's, that's out of date, you know what I mean, that part's not in the book anymore, wait a second here, hang on, he's going here, you can use this, just trim that tab, and it would work, you know, but he had all that up in his head, and uh, that's something that, uh, that that's rare nowadays. Yeah, those guys, where's Ross at today? Uh, he, uh, he had finally, uh, I guess, burned out on, uh, on the parts, and and accessories and stuff, or maybe it was just the customers that he had to deal with on a daily basis anymore. Do you know what I mean? That right. were more interested in like saddlebags and, you know, uh, Chrome Eagles. And, uh, he, uh, gave his notice one day and, uh, bought himself a couple, uh, tractors and, uh, was, uh, hauling, uh, God, I, I think it was timber. Really? He got a couple tractors and he went into that business. So, I mean, do you think there's a market? Do you think the market's going to come back around for real bike shops? Um, I think there's always going to be a be a place. You know what I mean? Uh, the problem is that uh, you know, now I work with a lot, you know, and I know a lot of guys that own shops, and I mean, they've had these shops for forty and fifty years, and. Uh, you know, they're, uh, they're a great source and they can, you know, take everything from, you know, JDs and VLs all the way up to twin cams apart. But I mean, it's like the automotive industry. I mean, more and more, uh, 
computers and software and all that is is entering into the the diagnostics and stuff and i mean when you look at it i mean that's a big investment these guys um aren't sure that they want to make the investment on it do you know what i mean so they're not they're not moving ahead and i can't blame them well and i'll that's a good place to bring up something that happened to me i mean for me I don't have a dyno at the shop that I have today, I, and I don't really have any plans on buying one. I had one at my other shop, and I, I just didn't did, didn't spit money out the backside of it very often. I, it wasn't it wasn't the the uh, the money turner that we thought it was going to be. So I don't have one here. But one of the things I wanted was a Harley scanalyzer, and I I found one and I bought one and I had it and everything. I tried to get a cable for it. I was it was missing the cable. I bought it under the pretense that it was missing the cable, and uh, no one would sell me one. And I, I get that. There's a special, you know, licensing agreement between Harley and Kent, Kentmore Tools and that. Well, <clears throat> I dropped the I, – I ended up selling my scanalyzer to somebody under the pretense they, they needed a spare one. They had all the other cables and stuff. And I, I went to find out the new scanalyzer from Harley, um, you have to log it in. It has to be plugged into the Harley mainframe every six weeks or it goes it goes dead. Wow, I didn't know that, see. So, you know – I, uh, but I always think there's going to be the, the smaller independent repair shops. I think they're always going to be around and, uh, you know, they're just going to deal with bikes from, you know, a certain year down. I mean, you know, the majority of Harley dealerships that I'm familiar with, if it's, you know, older than five years, they really don't want to service it, you know, but you know, that five years keeps moving back and then eventually there's bikes that, you know, the Harley dealer doesn't want to have in there, and the guys have got to have service work done someplace. So, you know, hopefully the young guys are going to pick all this stuff up or they're going to, you know, go to school for it or whatever, and they're going to, you know, take that into the independent shops with them. So I, I think that uh, I think these the small independent shops are still going to be around. What is your, what is your professional and personal opinion of Harley-Davidson Motor Company? Oh, boy. You know, Can I've you always say? had a love-hate relationship with Harley Davidson. You know, and I and I think that continues on to today. I mean, I'm not such a stick in the mud to where I say, you know, Harley Davidson ended with the shovel head and that's it. Anything after that's crap. You well, know, no, I, I wouldn't mean, let you say that because you built a bike with a twin cam in it. <laughs> well, yeah, but what I what I mean is, I mean, I'm not. You know, I remember back, and this is funny, you know, because I see these guys, you know, and uh, they go, you know see no evil, hear no evil, you know, speak no evil. And, uh, you know, I remember when the guys who had the pants and the knuckleheads, when the slab side shovel head came out, they were yanking their knuckles and their pans out of the frames and they were putting slab side shovels in and they were glad to have them. Do you know what I mean? And, um, you know, I've always had that approach to, to the motors. I don't, uh, I don't, uh, stop at a certain year and say, okay, anything after that. But, uh, you know, with with Harley, like I say, I've always had a love-hate relationship with them, and some of the stuff I really love, and then some of the stuff just, I don't know, really drives me crazy. Well, so let's, is there a certain engine that you prefer over another engine? Like, you know, I mean, what's your favorite? Well, you know, uh, I really like the Evolution Motors. I really do. You know, they're the, like everybody says, they're the, small block uh, 350 crate motor of the of the motorcycle industry, you know, I'm, the custom industry. I'm and, blown away uh, to hear you say that, to be honest with you. I mean, my favorite engine is a is a billet shiny, I love 113-inch 
like an SNS or my favorite, honestly, is TP to be to be fair. But I mean, I love an evolution motor. I I think the shovels sound the best. I like a I like a, a cone side shovel with a mag in it, and I'm happy, you know, for the sound. But I love an evolution of a high horsepower billet polished Evo. Well, you know, I started out uh, with a flathead Indian, and uh, that was my very first motorcycle. And I've had Harley and Indian flatheads. I've had knuckleheads. I've had panheads. I've had slab side and cone motor shovel heads. I've had Evos, and I've had twin camps. And, uh, you know, each motor has got their pluses, and they've got their minuses. And uh, I, I love them all. I mean, I have no qualms about building a bike with an Evo for a guy or a twin cam. Uh, just the same as I have no qualms about building a, a bike with a shovel or a, or a pan in it. Do you build any Sportster bikes? Uh, very few. You know, very few. Uh, I do a lot of work on on Evo Sportsters. Do you know what I mean? I hardtail yeah. a lot of frames. I shorten front ends. I do sissy bars and, you know, Frisco tanks and swap fenders around and stuff, but I mean, um, I have never personally built one for a project for myself. I want to give you a chance to to stand on a pulpit here for us because one of your very good friends and, and is a very, very good friend of mine is Kevin, and uh, <clears throat> I, I have a problem with people um, knocking off his stuff, and how do you – can you – can you comment on that? Can you rant on that? Can, can you, you know, give us your impression on that? Not Kevin stuff specifically, but people who, people who are in this industry that build stuff overseas and copy people's stuff. And I mean, I, there's some pretty blatant things going on, and, and that's something that I think that in order for this to be an authentic, real garage type podcast, we need to talk about that kind of stuff. Well, that's a, that's a real sore point with me, you know, because. I see it happen all the time, you know, um, say a small time guy, uh, you know, comes up with something that's unique, you know, and they put a lot of, uh, research into, uh, the materials and, uh, how they're going to construct something and how it operates and, you know, their first effort isn't successful or maybe their second or third or fourth efforts aren't successful. And then all of a sudden they hit it. You know what I mean? Right. And then they manufacture it and they put it out there and somebody takes all their blood, sweat, and uh, time that they've invested in this and they don't think twice about just taking it and just knocking it off. You know, and that's 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 something that's that's really a sore point with me. Well, you know, I know for a fact and I know, I'm not there's no reason to name any names because we everybody knows who these these companies are, and I just want to talk about it kind of ambiguously. Um, Kevin's shifter for his jockey shift for the ratchet side, that's been copied. Kevin's seat hinge has been copied and mass-produced. Um, there's a guy named, I believe his name is Austin, that came out with a streamlined design, dual-bearing uh, internal throttle. That's been knocked off, all by the same company, by the way, that I'm that I'm referring to. And I, I know the company that you're referring to because I remember Kevin going to one of the uh, trade shows, and I don't remember if it was, uh, it was in Indy or, or was, where it was, you know, and he walked Cincy. up to the table and he goes, that's my part, that's my part, that's my part, that's my part. And the guy said, yeah, so what, sue me. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that kind of stuff is 
I think that we do, you know, coming from the automotive industry and the automotive aftermarket, and I worked for the largest automotive aftermarket retailer, a company called Super Shops. We had them in Denver, too. Um, Oh, yeah. I worked for them for a number of years. I was a manager, and um, that company was basically put out of business just based on the fact that Summit and Jegs just absolutely depleted the margins on anything and put brick-and-mortar shops out of business. And I think we do a good job in this business. Um, even guys that don't even necessarily like each other will advocate for each other because we want to see we want to see us continue to exist and we want to see this business continue to flourish and we have to have these kind of conversations in order to ensure that. Yeah, you know, and and the problem is, you know, that uh, it a lot of people, you know, they say, oh, well, it's the Chinese this and the Chinese that and the Chinese this. You know, that guy that owns that Chinese company, he probably doesn't even know what the heck he's making. Do you know what I mean? Somebody sends yeah. him apart and says, can you duplicate this? And he says, yeah, I can do it. And he, he, he duplicates it, you know. And, you know, there's no real malice on his part. I mean, the guy that owns that factory in China or wherever, uh, he's not going to sit down and research every single part that comes into him. I mean, his job is to manufacture and, you know, it's that, it's that sleazy guy that, that grabs, uh, somebody's unique part and sends it to him. Do you know what I mean? He's the bad guy, not, not really the guy who's, who's manufacturing it. It's the guy that took it and had it duplicated and now he's distributing it for, you know, half the price of what uh, what the legit guy was doing. Yeah, and I have to tell you that I, I personally feel like that um, part of it is that our government doesn't do its job in supporting American innovation in, in a, an appropriate manner so that we're protected because we're not. Well, that's true. You know, I mean, you know, guys say, well, I'm going to get a patent on this or a patent on that, you know, and I mean, nowadays – uh, it, it's so easy to walk right around somebody else's patent, change, change it here, change it there. And, you know, anymore, the changes are minimal. I mean, it used to be like 20, 25%, you know, to, to, to get around somebody's patent. But I mean, it's, it's so simple to do it. Now you just do a couple changes and you can get a brand new patent on it. And there's nothing that the original patent holder can do, Yeah. you know? So, and, and especially when you're talking on an international scale, you know, I mean, Somebody like uh, a fabricator, Kevin, or myself, or a Dennis Goodson, or uh, a Rick Labriola, you know, L.A. Jockey Shift, uh, they don't have the the resources and the and the legal firepower to uh, to go after somebody like this, you know, and it could drag on for years and years and years and just bleed them totally dry trying to get some satisfaction out of it. I actually only know two. Uh, companies that have really actually, you know, been successful in fighting something like this, you know, that got satisfaction uh, both, you know, in the marketplace and monetarily. And and that's, you know, when you think of all the manufacturers that make custom bike parts, um, that's pretty small. Yeah, that's a very, you know, that's like a, a very, very low return uh, on that. So in that vein... Um, we have companies, um, very good companies, very good American companies that, that do, that actually do manufacture parts here and, um, like S and S and then you have companies like RevTech and Ultima and, and I'm, you know, I'm just speaking honestly and, and earnestly about it that build uh, a halfway decent product, but they build it 
in Korea, and I, and I actually think Ultima might be assembled here. I don't know. But, I mean, how do you justify the, the cost difference than, in that, though, as a, as a salesperson and as a bike builder? Well, you know, it's, it, it's, it's strange because, you know, I've heard the argument, too. They go, well, you know, Harley Davidson came about put the Evo motor, and then uh, S&S knocked it off. Do you right. know what I mean? How do you argue with something like that? Exactly. You know what I'm saying? And, and uh, you know, that's that's kind of the truth. But, you know, then again, S&S and Harley-Davidson have always had the same love-hate relationship with each other that I had. <laughs> so, you know, uh, one week they're buddies, the next week they're in court throwing lawsuits at each other. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. then they're hugging again. Yeah, so. and if you get the new Screaming Eagle catalog for 2013, um, there's Jim's 130s in there. That they're yeah. selling through the Harley dealer. So you're right. I mean, it's and it's one of those things where, you know, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. I think that, you know, there's enough room. I think there's enough room at the table for everybody to sit down and have a meal. And I think that we should do it more frequently. And I think that our, our, our business models would all kind of emulate success and, and good karma. Well, you know, and it, it, I was just thinking because uh... – I try and stay off of the internet message boards, you know, because, uh, you know, a, a lot of them are getting to the point where they're like totally unreadable. Do you know what I mean? And there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation on them that, you know, just there's a lot repeated. of trolling on there too. There's people that you know, they'll do anything just to start an argument on the internet. I don't get it. Yeah. And then, uh, well, I ran across this one post and this one guy was, uh, uh, they were talking, uh, and I'm going to bring up Bert Baker's name because I love the guy, you know. He's one of the nicest guys in the business. Uh, somebody said, uh, well, you know, I, I talked to a guy who uh, who manufactures transmissions, and their sales rep told me that they Baker gets their gears from the same Korean company we get our gears. No, with, they don't. Know. I know. I, do you know Gary Rutherford? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's who we get. They get their gears from. That's, I mean, you obviously know that if you know Gary Rutherford, but. But I, I saw that you know, and I thought, you know, Bert's a he's a friend of mine, you he's know, a very and, good uh, friend of mine. We we drink beers together and stuff, you know, and uh, I thought, that's such a slap in the face. Do you know what I mean? And, and for one thing, I thought it was unprofessional. You know, for for a, for another transmission manufacturer to you know disseminate that to somebody who would go onto a message board and then, you know, repeat that in front of everybody, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to, you know, name, name the name or name the, right. the, the competitor, but, uh, you know, I thought that was pretty, that was pretty low. Did you call him on it? Uh, no, I didn't. You know what I mean? Cause that, uh, cause then I would have just gotten upset and then the guy would have insisted and then there would have been a big flame war and, you know what purpose does it serve? So right. you know maybe I can get my point across with uh, not saying anything with, with your venue. Yeah, you well, know what I mean. I agree, and, and you know again, Bert is a very very good friend of mine, and I have I have so many stories because I traveled. I don't know if you know it or not, but um, my old shop, JR Cycle Works, which is now Plymouth Cycle and Speed, which is owned by uh, my old business partner Evan Edwards. Um, we brokered the deal where we were traveling with Baker, so anytime you see the installs. That was that was Evan and I doing those installs with them. So we traveled with the Baker family for you know for, they're still doing it today, and I did it with, for two years. It was 
and we, you know, we spent a lot of time with those folks and I know them very well. And I've had some funny stories I could tell you <laughs> sometime when you and I are sitting down in front of each other, we'll have a good laugh. But Bert revolutionized the industry. And I will tell you, he is set to do it again. There's something coming out very soon. Um, they have on Wednesday nights, they have on Internet Radio America, they have a, a show uh, called Two Wheel Meltdown. And Bert unveiled that they've got an automatic transmission coming out last week. Ooh. That's supposed Ooh. to retrofit. I'll tell you what, Jason. You can always trust a guy that's got his product tattooed on his arms. <laughs> that's, my, that's my philosophy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that guy, you know, it's funny because necessity is the mother of invention. And that guy is a very, and you know him well enough. And there's people that are going to be listening to this that haven't met Bert yet and don't know him. And um, he's a mad scientist completely, 110%. And um, he basically... He was a transmission mechan- uh, engineer for General Motors, and he came up. With, I, I think he revolutionized the industry. I think the six-speed absolutely did, and it's not like any other six-speed out there, not even the junk ones that they've copied the Baker with. It's not the same. Well, you know, I, I getting back to what you said before there, you know, it's it's a thin line. You know what I mean? I would love to put a Baker transmission in everybody's motorcycle that, uh, that I build for him. Do you know what I mean? But... You know, ultimately, it's, you know, I can suggest the components in that, you know, but ultimately it's up to the guy who writes a check. You know, he goes, man, I would like to pop for a a baker, but I just, you know, it's not in the budget, you know, and then I have to try and get him the next best source. But I always explain, you know, we're not, you know, really getting in the same quality or, you know, personally, this is how I feel. You know, well, you're and, you're 100 uh, percent right. There's no question. I've been in there. Have you been to the the Baker facility in Hazlitt, Michigan? No, I haven't. No. You should go sometime. It's it, it's it's very um it's very humbling to see uh, how how not big it is. I mean, it's not a huge. It's big, but it's not what you you know what you would think a, a, a that big of a of a company would or the company with that important of a product would have. I mean, they they run a tight ship. Everybody there is complete buy-in. I mean, it's a very family atmosphere. They have fun while they're working, um, but they get down to business and they know their stuff. They know their product. James Simonelli, I don't know if you know James. You probably do. You've probably known him since Christ was a carpenter. But he, well, I knew he him from SMS. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, and that guy, that guy goes way for a young guy. He's only, I think, he's only forty-two or forty-three. He goes way back into the eighties. He worked for Nimco. Yeah, I, I I remember. Yeah, so he, they're just a wealth of knowledge over there. They know their business, they know their product, and they 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 know how their product works. And if you sat down and priced a Harley transmission at five speed Harley with all rebuilt with Andrew's shafts and gears, you're going to be right in the same ballpark as buying one of their one of their one of their boxes. Well, you know, truth be told, um, if if somebody you know I could say, well, you know, I really like to put a Baker in this bike. And they said, well, you know, it's not really in the budget. And then I go, well, all right, let's go this way. Let's put the Harley-Davidson Crate 5-speed in there. Right. You know what I mean? And, you know, I will order them a, a Crate 5-speed, you know. And then if they go, I don't know, it's still kind of high, I go, well, you know, we got to fit your budget. And like I say, ultimately, it, it you know, the guy that writes the check is the one that makes the final decision, and, you know, I have to abide by that. So that's a, a tough, uh, thin line to 
to walk. Well, you know, okay, so let's talk about your customers. Let's uh, give me the demographic. I mean, obviously, no one can build a bike and, you know, you're not building a bike in 30 days. No one has that kind of money. No one has that kind of, you know, you can't do the kind of level work that you do to do that. So there's got to be some level of, um, there's a gestation period between, you know, when you start a bike and when you finish it, where you're developing a relationship with that customer. It's always something you can do down the road, right? Right. You know, and, and a lot of the people that I've, you know, built bikes for have become like really good friends, you know, and we stay in touch in that. So, you know, that's, uh, when that bike goes out of here, that's, that's important to me, you know, that, uh, it, it, it be the best I can put out of here. And, uh, but you still have to work with, uh, with the client. I mean, you know, the, uh, the days of the stupid money and all that, I hate to say it, you know, are long gone. I mean, I used to have guys that would pull, you know, 25 or 30 grand out of their home equity and go here, I want a bike, you know, right. put the best stuff in there, you know, and, uh, you know, those days are over with, but I mean, I still work with people that say, you know, I, I want the, the best components. And then I work with guys who are just, you know, regular old working guys and uh you know they got a wife and a couple kids and they're paying the mortgage and they're paying the two car payments and they're you know but they still want to ride or they've got some ideas or they've got half a project that they wanted to to go to completion and i i try to do the best job i can for them for the amount of uh for the amount of money that they have available to to spend where do you draw most of your um most of your clients from Oh, from, from, from all over, you know, I mean, it's funny when I first started this, like, uh, you know, just strictly building bikes like 12 years ago on my own and doing the modifications and the fabrication and stuff. Uh, I would say probably 70% of my work came from out of the Metro Denver area. And I only had about 30% in, in the Metro area. And then over the years, uh, it it kind of switched. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I think everybody thought, oh, Rich is here. You know what I mean? He's always been here. And, you know what I mean? And they just didn't think about it. And then all of a sudden they're going, why didn't I call Rich? You know what I mean? Sure. And, uh, you know, when I first started doing this, uh, I was fortunate. I uh, ran into uh, uh, Pete Slackowitz, uh here in town who used to own Front Range Cycles. And... Uh, I had known him for a while, and then when I went out on my own here, uh, he called me up about a month after I started, and he said, so look, he's going, how busy are you? I'm going, well, not too busy right now. He's going, good. He's going, I got a bunch of stuff that I don't want to do, and uh, you're the guy that's going to do it for me. And I said, yeah. (laughs) And he, like, kept me going, and I got to give Pete, uh, you know, a big pat on the back for this. He, like, fed me stuff that he probably could have done or guys in his shop could have done. Uh, but he subcontracted it to me and he kept me going through that first year. And, uh, you know, that really helped me out a bunch. So I gotta, I gotta give, uh, Pete, uh, you know, big props for that. Well, that's what I mean when I say um, I have a theory about the way the world's supposed to work. And, and, you know, maybe I'm silly, maybe I'm an idiot. Um, but I don't do plumbing. I don't do roofing. I don't do fences. I can mend some I can mend all three of those things. But I think that if I need plumbing done, I need to call a plumber. And if I need electrical work done, I need to call an electrician. And subsequently, if 
a plumber or an electrician needs motorcycle work, I'd like for them to call me. And that's kind of how I think things are supposed to work. And, again, maybe I'm silly. Maybe I'm crazy. But that's kind of how I, I see things. And I think that's the way the, the economy is supposed to go. Well, I, th- I think so, too. You know, I mean, excuse me. <laughs> it's my cold. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that, uh, you know, uh, when I when I first started working, I mean, I went into construction, you know, and I learned, you know, house framing, interior and exterior trim, countertops, cabinets, you know, basic wiring, plumbing and all that. So, you know, I can do a lot of that. But I mean, it always comes to the point where, like with my lathe, uh, I, I, I can't do that. Do you know what I mean? I can't run the run the circuits the and, and the, yeah, yeah, set everything up. And so, you know, I, I know the guys to call and, uh, fortunately they're motorcyclists. So, you know, we, we work out a deal right. and, uh, he does his thing and I do my thing when he needs it, you know, and I, I, I love that the most. What vendors are you direct with? I'm sorry, Jason, what was that? What vendors do you rely on? I mean, what vendors are you direct with? You're obviously you're direct with Baker. You're direct with S and S, right? Uh, well, I'm, um, I'll have to check my status with FNS because I haven't ordered a lot of stuff from them, but I was, <laughs> I got that a, phone uh, call last month too. They're like, Hey, uh, you know, but, uh, uh, 1200, uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm working on it, man. You know, <laughs> cripes. Yeah. Like. Well, I was on a, I was on, uh, when Opie was still there at SNS, you know, right. uh, yeah, I was on what they call a machine shop account, which means I could onesie twosie things, you Those know, are the best accounts to have with them, to be honest with you. Yeah, and, uh, you know, yeah, I deal direct with Baker, and uh, I have, uh, oh, gosh, I got about 35 vendors that I deal direct with. That's good. I mean, you know, so you're, you know, you're not, you're not, even though you did, you do network with your local Harley dealer and stuff like that, which you talked about, which is important to have a good relationship with them, you're, you know, you're unique in that you maintain those, those vendor relationships. That says a lot about your business. Well, I work hard at it. You know, I remember... Uh, you know, when I first started out, uh, you know, it was tough. It was tough to get vendor accounts, you know, and you don't really make the money on the labor. You've got to have the markup on the parts. And, uh, it was, uh, it was tough going, you know, but then I got a couple and then from there with the business, I could, you know, get a couple more and a couple more and a couple more. And then you travel the country and you hit the events and you do a lot of, you know, backslapping and uh, handshaking at like Sturgis and Daytona and Laughlin and wherever, you know, face-to-face with these guys. And, uh, that helps. You know, yeah, that's how I got a lot of the accounts the, that I deal with, you know, like uh, Exile Cycles, for example, or Baker or, uh, you know. And then uh, some of the accounts I got through Friends of Friends, you know, they were a referral. So the vendor would call me up and say, hey, Joe Blow said, I need to give you a call, and, you know, what can I do for you? And I said, well, this is what I do. And they say, yeah, I think we can work with you, you know. And uh, that's that's how I got a lot of them. That's, that's cool that you, that you understand that and, that you, you know, that that is a part of our business and that uh, – that the people who need to sell parts understand that as well, that they put value in stock in somebody that is not going to, you're not going to order 50 tires at a time where I might order 50 tires at a time. They, but you still are, are treated appropriately and you're given that, you know, you still get to buy a tire when you need one. You know what I mean? Right. People, you know, and, and I understand that, uh, you know, 
I've had guys go, uh, well, how about, uh, you know, I give them like the, the final price on the bike. I go, look, you know, for what you're looking at and what we need to do and this and that, it's going to be, you know, X amount of dollars and they'll go, well, you know, let's knock, uh, I'll give you all cash and we'll knock off like, you know, 20%. I'm going, man, I can't do that. And they're going, well, let's do 10. And I'm going, look, you don't understand this business. You know, my markup isn't like a, a straight percentage. You know, I said, I might get a 7% markup from this guy. I might get a 25 from this guy. I might get a 40 from this guy. I said, I can't just knock that much money off, you know, cash or no cash. You know, I said, I still got to, still got to pay these guys. That's a, that's a dangerous, uh, that is a very dangerous habit to get into anyways. You know what I mean? Where you're just you're you're cutting cutting your nose off to spite your face if you're just going to flatly give somebody a discount across the board for something like that because the word gets out on that and then the next thing you know you're not making your nut you're not making your rent payment you're not making your light bill payment and that's that's it's too important to to not do that you know what I mean? Yeah, well, my brother-in-law and my sister have a a very good automotive repair business here in town. And, uh, he started out as a a GM line technician and he worked really hard. And then he got to the point where he wanted to go out on his own and he's been successful for over 20 years, you know, and he gave me some advice when I first started, he said, look, he said, you've got five repair shops on the street. He said, you know, if they're all charging $70 an hour, you have to charge $70 an hour. He said, you can't charge 60. He said, you can't charge 50. He said, because everybody's overhead is the same. And he said, and all of a sudden he said, you've got all this work. He said, you can't get to. And he said, and you've got people that get mad. And he said, people are going to try and go cheaper still. And he said, it's, uh, to the point where all of a sudden you're, you're losing money hand over fist and you can't figure out why, but you've got a parking lot full of vehicles. Yeah. And you need to cut your bottom 10% of your business every year too. The bottom the bottom ten percent of business uh, of your of your clients are not going to. Uh, those are the people that spend the least amount of money, require the most amount of hand holding, and the most amount of cajoling and, and you know and and compromise and stuff. And you're better off to you're better off to do them a favor and and cut them loose so they can go work some with someone else that that they can maybe get what they want from. I don't you know I don't know how to ex- explain it any other way. It sounds rude to kind of say that, but it's a smart business tactic. Well, you know, I try and treat everybody the same. I mean, I don't care if you've got, you know, a couple nickels to rub together or if you've got, you know, an unlimited expense account when you want to have modifications or a bike built from me. I I try and treat everybody the same, you know, because they they all deserve the same respect because they came to me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I owe that to them. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys who have gotten, like, into the middle of projects or whatnot and they've, you know, run out of money or they say, man, you know, like, uh, you know, engine blew up on my truck. I got to get back and forth to work. I can't, you know, we can't finish the bike, you know, and I've had bikes that have sat for, you know, four or five, six months, you know what I mean? With no work done on them. But I always tell the guys, look, you know, it's no problem, man. Just, when you get back in the box again and you want to go ahead, just give me a call and, you know, we'll pick up give me a little bit more money and we'll go from there, you know. And then there's been some guys where, you know, they've been kind of bucks down and I've gone ahead and ordered parts and stuff for them and, you know, 
put them on the bikes and stuff. And I said, you know, catch me when you can, you right. know. But uh, That's you know, karma. I I try and treat everybody this you know equally and the same. And I, and I always look at it from my perspective too. I go, man, what if I was in this situation? You yeah, know I what think I you mean? have to. You you gotta you have to actually um, kind of put yourself in that instance and and uh, add that human element. Um, yeah. You've got somebody that's working for you right now that's in an internship position, right? Well, he's um, – yeah, I guess it's an internship. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good relationship. Let's put it that way. Apprenticeship? I mean, you're teaching them the ropes? I mean, what do you tell, what do you tell somebody who's young, that's green, that wants to get into the business? Well, it's, it, it's tough, you know, because uh, Steve was uh, – he was a unique deal. You know, I used to get – emails and letters and stuff and say, look, I just got on MMI and, you know, do you need any help or, and, uh, you know, whatever, I'll just, I want to come in and watch or I'll sweep floors and that, you know, and I say, well, you know, my business is small and, you know, I, I wish I could help you out, but, you know, I can't, but Steve sent me an email and he said, yeah, my brother lives here in Denver and I'm thinking about coming out and, you know, uh, do you have any openings or, you know, full-time or part-time or whatever? And I told him at the time, and this is, we're going on five years now. I said, uh, you know, I really don't. I said, but when you get to town here, you know, uh, and you get yourself settled, give me a call and come on over. And, you know, he walked in the door and, uh, you know, there was just like that instant rapport, you know, and we've been going like that ever since. Where's Steve from? He's from Stevens Point, Wisconsin, and uh, sounds you know, cold. He, <laughs> it is, <laughs> but uh, it uh, he comes from a, a, a family of riders. Do you know what I mean? He yeah. rides. His brother rides. His dad rides. His brother-in-laws ride. His uncles ride. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And uh, so it uh, meant something to him to be in this business. It meant something to him to have some sort of a. Uh, a master protege kind of, you know, um, relationship with somebody that, that could teach him the right way to do stuff. Well, um, you know, he's, he, he, he was like really enthusiastic. Do you know what I mean? And he had like yeah. the, I don't know how to put it, you know, he had the, uh, the motivation to contact me first off. Do you know what I mean? And then yeah. when he came over here, I could tell, you know, what the guy was made out of. And, uh, you know, he was serious about all this, and it wasn't something that he, like, you know, said, eeny, meeny, miny, I want to do this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I've had a couple of interns come through my shop, and, you know, I've, I've found that I think they wanted to be around the shop, and they wanted to be involved in that, but they didn't really want – you know, you can kind of see – I had a, a, a guy that uh, was in, was kind of interning at our shop, and we took him over to Daytona for the day because we're we're fortunate we're only an hour and a half away. And I could tell that day I knew that this he had absolutely zero interest in. I I want somebody in my shop. I want somebody who's going to be doing it, whether they're doing it with me or not. You know what I mean? Whether it's it, it's in their blood. You know how it is. You you couldn't quit this if you wanted to. Oh no. Oh, no. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for a long, long time. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this since 68. So, you know, this is, this is what I do, right. you know. And uh, when Steve walked in the door, uh, I looked at him and I said, this is what Steve does too. 
And I think that's what the, I think that's where we made the connection. Do you know what I mean? I could tell right away. What is, uh, how's his skill level? You know what? It's, it's, it's real high. It's real high. He was kind of a, you know, diamond in the rough when he came in here and, uh, he soaked everything up like a sponge and, uh, it got to the point where he was like wrestling the tools out of my hands. Do you know what I mean? He's going, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You know what I mean? And he, he, he jumped right in and, uh, you know, like everybody, he, he made, uh, you know, wasn't quite, uh, as skilled at some things as he was, but at others, but, uh, he worked really hard at the ones that he wasn't. And, uh, you know, I don't have any qualms about really letting him do anything un- unsupervised. Do you know what I mean? If if I said, Steve, here, we need to set the drivetrain up, do the drivetrain alignment on this, and, and I'll be back in five hours, uh, I'll get back and it'll already be done and he'll have moved on to something else. Do you ever worry one day or do you look forward to the day where he says, you know what, I'm going to go over here and, and do this either on his own or for somebody not a competitor. I, I don't mean in like in a, in a bad way. I mean, but you know, where you gonna, where he's gonna outgrow Shamrock, or do you think Shamrock will grow to accommodate him? I think that uh, you know, if Steve was in that situation, uh, I think what I'd have to do is is wish him the best. Do you know what I mean? Right. And uh, you know, maybe he figured he reached uh, his limit here. And he wanted to explore other avenues, but like I say, it's um, it's a part-time thing for Steve. Uh, he has a full-time gig. He's a bartender at uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, busiest bars in in Boulder, Colorado. So oh, I thought he did. I see now. I thought he did. I thought he was a stand-in for um, Charlie Hunnam on the Sons of Anarchy show. <laughs> Don't ever tell him that. Don't ever tell him that. <laughs> well, I, I I hope he hears this, and I hope he gets a chuckle out of it at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's one of the things. Like I say, his full-time gig is, uh, you know, tending bar and and uh, you know, helping out with the management of that bar and. Uh, People come in all the time, belly up to the bar, and I'll look at them and they'll go, do you know who you look like? You look exactly like, and he goes, don't even say it. Right, maybe you someone know? will kick out with a Greg Allman one time or something. And really, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's a better person to look like if you're going to look like somebody at a bar, right? Yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, he, he gets that all the time, you know. But, uh, hey, the chicks dig him, so what can I say? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Rich, um where can people find uh, where can people find you at online? Are you going to be at any events this year? Are you going to Sturgis, Daytona, everything, anything like that? Uh, no, I, I, I probably won't. Um, I'll probably be at a bunch of the events this year, but I mean, as far as is setting up and vending, right? Um, I think it, those days are kind of done, aren't they? Well, they are, you know, because it's really expensive. You know what I mean, and. Uh, First, you've got your you know vendor spot, and then if you're going to be legit, you've got your tax licenses as well, and uh, you know then there's the the travel expenses there and back, and you know uh, fuel isn't exactly cheap anymore. No, and uh, there's no uh, promoters out there anymore that are going, hey, you know, if you can come to the event, I I might be able to take care of your rooms for the weekend, you know, as an incentive, and you know those days are gone. And, uh, you know, you're pretty much on your own hook uh, for the majority of the the builders in that. So um, I'll probably uh, hit uh, Born Free this year. Uh, I'd like to hit the – I've been invited to the Brooklyn Invitational the last three years, and I haven't been able to attend, and I'm 
trying to make that a, a must get to event with uh with my new project that I've that I'm gonna have finished this year for me, my new custom. That'd be cool. Uh I'd like to hit that. Uh I'd like to uh hit Sturgis again, although speaking of hits, I don't want to hit a deer again this year, so uh, Yeah, let's not <laughs> do that. But uh, you know, I'll be at Sturgis, I'll be attending Sturgis and I'll get around to all the vendors and stuff to, you know, press a flash and say hi and uh, have a good time. And uh, as far as uh, actually setting up and vending, I probably won't do that this year. Where can we find you at online? Um, you can find uh, you can find me on my website. That's uh, www.shamrockfabrication.com. Then I have a blog that I that I uh, write and work on a lot, and the name of the blog is Applied Machete. And uh, you can find me on Facebook. I have a uh, personal page on there as well as a Irish Rich Custom Cycle Shamrock Fabrication business page. So you should be able to get uh, get a hold of me through any of those. Well, cool, man. I really appreciate you doing this. This has been very fun for me, and, and you know, and I I'm just gonna I'm I waited to the very end to do this, and I just want to tell you that I have a tremendous amount of respect for for you and your work, and. Uh, I'm I'm honored that you uh, took the time to spend with us to, to do this, and and I hope that you'll do it again. Well, I'd like to do it again. You know, it's I don't get an opportunity to do something like this very often, and uh, you know, this uh, this is a pleasure for me as well. You know, I mean, uh, like I say, uh, doing something like this is uh, is something that I don't uh, normally have an opportunity to do. So I'm I'm tickled to death to do this. Well, cool, and and I'll promise you that sometime in the near future here, I'll find my way out your your side of the world. Uh, I, it's been five years since you and I have stood in the same piece of real estate, so I'll make that's my way true. out that way that's too. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it's been it's been that long, man. I don't I don't realize how fast the time flies, you know. And then when I think back, I go, yeah, it's been that long. Yeah, it was two thousand seven NLP. So, wow. Well, Rich, you have yourself a wonderful evening. Have a great 2013, and uh, I'll be getting in touch with you very soon here because I, I want to do this again with you. I think we have a lot to talk about, and I think you're a very interesting guy, and I think you've got a, a very, very good story to tell. So we'll talk to you real soon. Well, as long as you ask me about stories where the where the statues have run out on it, I think we can uh, I think we can squeeze a few of those in there. Good. <laughs> Can't wait to hear some more. All right. Take care, Rich. I appreciate it, Jason. Have a good night. All right, bye-bye. Bye. That was Irish Rich, www.shamrockfabrication.com. Um, one of the true, true artisans in our in our industry, and uh, I'm glad to call him a friend. Thanks for listening to the Hell on Wheels podcast. Coming up very soon, um, I don't have dates for him yet, but we're going to be talking with Chopper Dave. I am going to be talking to Murdoch, Mr. Scott Lurg from Baker Drivetrain. We're going to be talking to Latricia Horseman from My Little Needle Tattoo in Plymouth, Michigan. She does a lot of the work that I've gotten done and. uh that's this episode of the Hell on Wheels podcast. I thank you very much for listening. My name is Jason Hallman. Good night and God bless. Thank you for listening. Remember to rate us on iTunes.